0: Hi, I'm Jennifer Ackerman-Haywood, and you're listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast. This show is all about art, craft, and creativity, and I produce it weekly in the hope that it will help all of us live long and crafty lives. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Craft Sanity. Hope you had a great week. If you knit and you own an iPod, this week's guest needs no introduction. Pour yourself some tea and grab your knitting, because you're about to hear from Brenda Dane. Yes, the one and only Brenda Dane is on my show. Pretty awesome, huh? For those of you who have yet to get hooked on her fabulous show, Cast On, a Podcast for Knitters, let me uh, take a moment here to give you a bit of background information. Brenda is a 46-year-old American writer and knitter living in West Wales. She's witty, funny, and smart, and she can work on mic like a professional broadcaster, a trait that has clearly won her the admiration of many of her crafty podcasting peers. Her knitting podcast is wildly popular, and if you listen to it, I don't have to tell you that, and I don't have to tell you why. Thousands of knitters around the globe tune in each week to hear her essays and her chatting with all of us about knitting and memories. And she just did a wonderful series on the muses and linked each one to knitting. I figured this is a good way to tide all you Cast On fans over until July 7th, when she'll be back in the podcasting mode. Make sure that you check out craftsanity.com where you'll find awesome pattern from Brenda. It's a sock pattern and I'll explain more about that after the podcast. So stick around for the announcements at the end. And also stick around for more information about how you can win a free book. It's a copy of You Grow Girl, The Groundbreaking Guide to Gardening by Gayla Trail, who will be next week's guest. So stick around after the show for more information about that. Let's get to that chat with Brenda. It's time to cast on, folks. Brenda, I hope you don't mind me using that line.
1: I've been living in Wales now. This is my sixth summer here. And um, I never really, when I first moved
0: here, I I never really
1: imagined that I was going to stay. It was just some, you know, some place that I was going to come to for now. And I can remember the first, um, the very first summer that I was here, I went into a, what I thought was a fabric store. The fabric stores don't really exist here, but I went into this place that I thought was a fabric store, and the woman there had a sort of weird accent somewhere between Welsh and, you know, American. And so I kind of figured that she was either American or Canadian, so I asked where she was from, and she said New York, and it's like, well, okay, that's the East Coast, and it's as far removed from you know, from my heritage on the West Coast. So we didn't really have much in common, you know? Right. Oh, you're from New York. I'm from Oregon, other side of the country. And then I asked her how long she had been there, and she said 20 years. And I just remember feeling absolutely shocked at the thought that someone would leave their country and move to a different one and stay for 20 years. It really stunned me. And now... I've been here six years, and I don't think I'm ever going to live in the U.S. again. Really? It wasn't a decision. Like, I didn't decide to move to Wales to live here for the rest of my life. It just was something I just did.
2: For those who have not gotten totally hooked on your show yet, can you fill the people in a little bit about how you ended up in Wales? Well, my
1: partner is Welsh. Uh, Her name is Tanya, Tanya Clark. And we met online in a news group back in the sort of heady days, first days of the Internet. And we formed this friendship, and we just started writing each other. And it was first it was like, you know, an email every couple of weeks, and then it was an email every week. And before we knew it, we were kind of writing every single day, and the emails were just getting longer and longer and longer. And now, I mean, when we went to make the application for me to stay in this country as her permanent partner, Um, we had to submit this big dossier to the Home Office, which is the the agency in Britain that handles all the immigration.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: And we submitted a selection of our emails over the course of you know, the first, I guess at that point we had been friends or known each other online for about 18 months. And And when we went to figure out how many pages of emails, like they wanted our correspondence and we had to explain that if we printed out every single email, it would be a stack of paper about five feet high. Oh, goodness. It was thousands and thousands of pages that we wrote to each other. Wow. And so over time, you get to know somebody pretty well. You know? Oh, yeah. And I just remember one day watching an email from her come in and sort of, you know, be downloaded into my inbox. And just watching this, you know, knowing it was from her and watching it downloaded, I just thought, I really love you. And it was that, it was like this, you know, Bing! I just kind of woke up and I realized, wow, I just really love this person. (laughs) And then it became, you know, absolutely impossible that we should not meet. And so I think within the next couple of months, she came to visit and um, and came to partake of a very American holiday, Thanksgiving, which she had never experienced before. And the rest, as they say, is history.
2: At what point did you decide, okay, um, I'm going to Wales?
1: Britain has a... um, provision that allows same-sex couples to actually be together, and uh, the visa was here for me. My preference at the time would have been to remain in the U.S. and have Tanya come, and she actually did get a a six-month visa, and she came and lived in the the States for six months with me, but she wasn't allowed to work at the time. And since Britain has a provision, they actually have a visa available that would allow me to stay here permanently, it was really a no-brainer. It was not like, you know, we had any other option. If we were going to be together, it had to be in this country. So that's really what forced, you know, forced the decision, is that there just was, and we endured over the course of, I think it took us about two and a half years to actually be able to live in the same country, and we had to go through what a lot of international same-sex couples have to go through, which is basically long periods of enforced separation which really sucks. <laughs> yeah, that is difficult. Yeah, for sure. So, but it all does have a happy ending. You know, eventually I made it here and was allowed to stay and made the application and got um, permanent leave to remain in the country. And I've now been here over five years, and I can apply for citizenship. And, um, and I, you know, I'm still toying with the idea of doing that. I haven't decided yet whether or not I want to do that.
2: Well, what is it like um, as an American living abroad? I don't know if people... Do people complain about American foreign policy to you, or are they pretty accepting and realize that you're not the one making the decisions in Washington?
1: What I get a lot is, gosh, I just can't stand Americans, but I like you. And I do get, you know, there are, I mean, people feel very free to sort of um, complain about U.S. foreign policy. I think they almost assume that since I'm not there, I've left because of U.S. foreign policy. <laughs> so I must be a kindred spirit and a like mind. You know? <laughs> when actually it's a 50 50 shot given the split in America right now. That's true. That's you know, I true. could be either vehemently conservative or vehemently progressive, and they don't know, but they just assume that since I'm in this country, obviously I left because of George Bush. <laughs>
2: And you might just let them think that, you know. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Well, sometimes. Especially since, you know, the ones who complain to me about it. I mean, I kind of do share a lot of their views about American foreign policy. You know, I get a very, very different perspective living over here than I ever had in the U.S. And I'm just amazed sometimes at how little I knew of the world before I actually left its borders. And it makes me... um, kind of saddened. I wish more Americans would travel abroad and and get a better sense of, you know, who they are and where what the place is in the world of America instead of, um, I don't know, staying home and thinking that it's really the be-all and end-all.
2: I think that's probably our greatest downfall as Americans is that um, just the culture we live in is so insulated. We think we're the center of the universe, you know,
1: Yeah. and
2: it really isn't that way at
1: all. I did, too. When I first moved to this country, I still was, oh, my God, I just cringe sometimes when I think how arrogant I was. (laughs) People would, you know, when it comes to culture, you know, American culture, American music, American theater or cinema, um, I really believed that if you weren't famous in the United States, then you just weren't famous. And it completely discounted... I can't believe I'm even admitting that. It just sounds so horrible <laughs> when I say it out loud. You know, but I kind of like that line in that song, New York, New York, where, you know, if you could make it there, you could make it anywhere. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how I felt. Like, it's just like the pinnacle was to make it in popular culture in America and that it completely discounted any other country's culture whatsoever. And the fact is that there are... Countries, you know, where, I mean, every country has its own very rich culture, and, um, and I just completely ignored that as an American. Uh, but the longer I'm here, the more, the more I realize that lack of shared culture keeps me kind of, um, well, I'm not able to get the same jokes as everybody else because I'm missing pieces. And so you have to kind of, after living abroad for a while, you sort of have to open up to the culture or move back where you came from.
2: I think you can help me out with something. You always note when you do something that you consider humiliating or someone will, you know, write in and tell you. Every episode. <laughs> well, for me, my my big downfall was um I interviewed a woman from Oregon, and I said... Oregon,
1: all the way through the interview, very bad, very very bad. You should be humbled and humiliated. Oh, I was completely a cardinal sin, but certainly a venal sin. Well,
2: especially you know, you folks from Oregon, uh, you know, take uh, I think great offense to that. And um, but have you run into that before with Midwestern folks totally you know screwing up? I don't know why people here pronounce it that way, but is this something that you just? I
1: don't know why either. But you know what? In Britain, they never mispronounce it. No, Hmm. they get it right over here. But somebody from Missouri will say Oregon. Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, I said it all the way through. And do you know how I found out? You know how I found out? No one even, no one sent me a snippy email. No one did anything to get my attention, but I, you know, happened to be on the woman's website that I had interviewed, and I was looking at some of the comments that people made about the podcast, you know, kind of just being, you know, just like just kind of trying to see what, you know, how it went over, and... Yes, basically. (laughs)
1: Basically, yeah. And um, okay, we all do (laughs) it. And
2: and I noticed a couple people wrote. You know, I one person wrote something like, "I wanted to scream every time she said Oregon," and they, you know, phonetically spelled it the way I said it, and I knew right away. I'm like, "Oh crap!" You know, I didn't even. Because I just say it that way. I didn't think about it, you know. But um, it is really humbling when, you know, we do these shows. And, um, you know, we, we sometimes make ourselves look like goons, you know. You
1: know and every, it doesn't matter. There there are so many people ready to just kind of step up and point out your mistakes. Oh, yeah. It's so kind of them, really, to do that, isn't it?
2: Have you gotten some doozies
1: as far as feedback? Um, well, once at the beginning of the news series, um, I mispronounced Mnemosyne, the, the mother of the muses, the one whose name means memory. Okay. And I pronounced it some other way, <laughs> some very non-Greek way, <laughs> some totally, you know, clueless American way of pronunciation. And I had like three people write in and say, <clears throat> excuse me, <laughs> they're always very nice and very respectful and, you know, hope you don't mind if I mention you were a complete ass. <laughs> You know, I appreciate it, and I was able to, like, correct it, but, you know. Well, the same it is, up as another moment of ritual humiliation. <laughs> oh, I love
2: that, because I think that, you know, it's one of those things where you you, you put yourself out there, you do these shows, and the peanut gallery speaks, yeah. you know, in the end. So, And it's out there forever. Me mispronouncing uh, your home state <laughs> is out in cyberspace forever. And, you I know, mean,
1: you can get all precious about it and pull everything back and try to make it perfect. Oh, I'm not going to do in. that. No. It's a really good record, you know? You're creating a, It's like you're releasing a moment in time. Well, and I think that's it's- why, that's, I think that's what thrills me the most about the whole podcasting thing is that everybody can have a voice. Media is not just for big corporate conglomerates anymore. You have a political viewpoint, you want to put it out there. Well, by God, buy a microphone. Get yourself some software, and you can be broadcasting your views. You can be telling the world your truth. And it can all happen very, very cheaply. Very, I mean, there's no FCC telling you what you can and can't say. You want to say, <laughs> you can say. <laughs> <laughs> or what was it? Remember that old show WKRP yes. in Cincinnati, where Dr. Johnny Fever gets fired from a job for saying "booger" on the air <laughs> as a DJ. And that's so mild these days. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's why I just am um, so enthusiastic about more people. Like the more podcasts, the more knitting podcasts, and the bigger pool of experience that we all have to draw from. Well, do you
2: think you would have started podcasting if you still lived in the States?
1: Boy, I don't really know. I know the whole podcasting thing here. Like, I think more Americans know what a podcast is than more than, than do Britons. It's not, um, like, I think people know that Ricky Gervais has a podcast. Because The Office was so big in popular culture here during the few, you know, the few years that it ran. And he was such a big star and he won a couple of BAFTAs. And so everybody knows who Ricky Gervais is. And I think he's raised the profile somewhat. But it's still, um, not nearly as widely known or widely used in this country as it is in the U.S. I might have come to it a little sooner. I think I probably would have done it, yeah.
2: When did you decide to do a podcast?
1: I went to France last year to do an interview, to interview a wonderful knitter by the name of Mary Rose Lortet and she was she exhibited at the Craft Council Gallery and I covered that story for Interweave and then I came to know of her work and she was one of the artists that I whose work I really wanted to profile. So I went to France last year and met with Kate Gilbert in Paris. And Kate was the, um, she's the woman who designed uh, Clapotis. Okay. And so Pam Allen, the editor of Interweave, put me in touch with Kate Gilbert, who was going to be, who was someone who spoke both knitting and French. And so together we went to this little area in the Burgundy region of France and interviewed this woman who spoke no English. And Kate is the one who was responsible for letting me know that there was a knitting podcast. And when she said, oh, there's a knitting podcast, and I got interviewed for it, and I mean, I really kind of, it's like I didn't even really know what she was talking about. Um, but I came back home after that experience, and I, you know, Googled knitting podcasts, and I found KnitCast, and I downloaded the episodes, and I listened to Marie's show, and that kind of piqued my interest into just sort of podcasting kind of in general. But I hadn't really yet decided that I wanted to do one until I heard Adam Curry's show. What Marie does is very specific, and she's a BBC journalist, and she has this great, wonderful BBC interview style. And so it just, it just didn't even occur to me that I could do that, too, because I don't really consider myself the greatest of interviewers. And I have other um, skills, but interviewing is not really one of my strong suits. So it never really crossed my mind that I could do it, too, until I heard The Daily Source Code with Adam Curry, which is sort of the one that... Um, I guess made me think I could do it too because it's just this guy who started um, producing a podcast so that programmers who were writing the code would have some, you know, the people who were involved in like getting the RSS code up and running would have something on a daily basis to check their code against. That's where the name comes from, daily source code. So he just started talking into a microphone and uploading MP3 files and it, you know, it kind of caught on and his style is so easy. And he just sits down and he talks about his life, and he talks about his business, and he makes jokes, and sometimes he's a bit blokey for me, you know? (laughs) I mean, he's really a guy, and his humor is a bit sophomoric, I don't always care for the music he plays, but I think his heart's in the right place, you know, and he seems like a nice guy. And that's when I really started realizing, okay, well, podcasting can be more than just interviews it can be just talking about a thing and I started downloading more podcasts and getting a better idea of kind of what the range is that's out there and and then I got really excited about it because I realized that somewhere in all this these different styles I could do it too and from that point on I think it was probably about two months before I really turned on the microphone and actually recorded my first show but for those two months I was So excited and so intent on learning everything I could, and I just downloaded every piece of information I could get. I read everything. I started to assemble my equipment, and I was so excited about it. that And I knew I wanted to do a knitting podcast. I just knew it was going to be different from Marie's. I was going to bed thinking about the knitting podcast. I would wake up in the morning. It would be like the first thing on my (laughs) mind was this knitting podcast. I was just consumed with the idea of doing it. I'm so excited about it and nervous and scared. And, you know, I think what everybody goes through when they first decide or begin to think, yeah, I could probably do this too. And this would be something I would really enjoy. And, I mean, I don't know. Didn't you go through kind of a phase of that as well? Well,
2: I think mine was accelerated into about five minutes. Um, I was on. (laughs) I'm a very impatient woman, and I was on maternity leave. Um, I had a baby in November, and my husband said um he was he was talking about podcasts and i'm like and i knew kind of a little bit about what a podcast was i had never listened to a podcast and i think around december some you know in mid-december he played a podcast for me and it was like like a tech podcast that he listened to of course was not interested at all in the content of the show but i was uh intrigued when he said oh yeah well there's you know let's see if there's any on craps you know so we did a search and found um some crafting podcasts and i um Soon, um, and I hadn't, I did not listen to your podcast until after I started podcasting, which I think would have been, done myself a great service to listen to your show first because my first, my first episode, which is out there forever, is horrendous. Um,
1: they all are. Well, my episode zero of um, the reason I like rushed to the microphone to get that one recorded is that A, I was like talking about it and talking about it and I thought I had told myself it was going to be October 1st and that date came and went and Adam Curry played this really funny song called Monster Hash. <laughs> it's <laughs> about like President Bush smoking hash in the White House. and has sounds of like a bubble pipe in the background. It's just this silly song. And it was like two days before Halloween. And I just realized I loved the song. I wanted to play it on my podcast. And if I didn't do it right then, then it wasn't going to happen until the year following. And who knows what could happen. And it would just totally lose, you know, right. the song of the moment, in other words. So that was the thing that, like, kicked my butt into gear and actually made me sit down. In front of my <laughs> a song about,
3: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> song about
2: the president smoking it. Yeah, <laughs> a song about the president smoking What more reason could, could you possibly need?
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I know, really,
1: it sounds like very shabby and shallow now, doesn't it? <laughs> well,
2: my uh, reason for just getting out there so quick was I was going back to work. And I oh, thought, well, I'm not yeah. gonna have any time, so the day I went back to work january twenty third is the day I posted my first show, and I sound um I mean my guest was fine, but i sounded I talk really fast, normally, so my husband's like, you know, just make sure you just speak slowly so people can understand you and um I of course spoke so slowly, I sound like I'm on like muscle relaxers like <laughs> know, emerging from some kind of deep sleep or something, it was ridiculous. I mean, and looking looking back, or if I don't listen to it, um, I don't think I'll ever listen to that show again, but... um I, no, I, I haven't
1: really listened to that first, then I, I just cringe. That. Just, I would just cringe all the way through it. I have a hard time even listening to the show that I have just finished recording while I'm editing it, you know, <laughs> 10 minutes after I'm done recording, I'm in the editing process, and I have a hard time. I'm listening for the pops and the crackles and the, anything that I want to take out, anything that I think makes me sound like an idiot. Um, you'd think I'd get all the moments of ritual humiliation out during the editing process, but no. <laughs>
2: well, I think it's such a mad dash to get
1: get finished that
2: yeah. you're like, okay, I'm just, well, I know for me, I'm just like, okay, I'm done, you know? <laughs> and then
1: you're like, oh, why didn't I take four <laughs> minutes,
2: you know, to make sure this was totally polished? But um, I
1: don't know what it is, but I mean, I record on a Friday, and I try to have the podcast up by Friday afternoon. Wow. And it doesn't seem like, um, like no matter how many days prior to that, I begin the whole process, it's still not finished any earlier. It just gives me more time to kind of fuss around with it, I guess.
2: Well, how many subscribers do you have now?
1: You know, I actually stopped looking at the number of subscribers, um, my feed burner stats, because they fluctuate every week. They go up and down. And the feed burner statistics—they're a measure of how many. They like go around; they ping all those different computers that are on, and it's like how many they ping, how many responses they get back in a 24-hour period. I see. So that's where the subscriber number comes from, which isn't actually a very good measure of how many people are downloading your show every week.
2: So do you? Do you? Have, you're in the thousands, though,
1: as far as people yeah, listening each week. Yeah, I about four thousand. It's creeping up to like it's right. It's right around forty-two hundred. It creeps up a little higher every week. It just feels like a few people, a few more people find me every week. And That's pretty fantastic. Did you I'm ever imagine? i that people, I mean, I go back to those older episodes and I'm just amazed that, you know, like yesterday, episode two got 12 downloads. I just wonder, who are those 12 people that are going back so far, you know? <laughs> yeah, what I want
2: to say to people that you downloaded the earlier versions of my show is, I'm trying to get better.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know? <laughs> but but when I... I realized that as I was looking at the feed burner stats every week, they would drop on a Saturday or Sunday, and and they would drop by like 200, and I would just go into a decline, you know? I was <laughs> just like, oh man, what did I say? I lost 200 subscribers. And then they would come back, and it was just this roller coaster watching the stats, and I just realized nothing good can come of this. <laughs> Why do I care, you know, how many subscribers there are? It just doesn't, it's not even a number that matters. It's an arbitrary thing, and it's nothing to do with the number of episodes that are being downloaded. The subscriber number is actually around um like I think the last time I looked it was around thirteen or fourteen hundred um but the number of downloads I get every week are about you know well for the for the newest show, it's about four thousand, and then there's all the back stuff that get ten to twenty to you know fifty downloads a day so um. So total, I mean, I'm getting like, you know, 6,000 shows are being downloaded from a Libsyn site every week. It's pretty cool. I know. It's pretty amazing.
2: How has this changed your life, this experience, this fame that you have now on the on the internet?
1: Well, this is a strange thing because the fame isn't real, you know? I realized this. I, was li- I used to listen to this podcast called Yeast Radio. And it's one that kind of is under the umbrella of Adam Curry's pod show. It's part of the pod show family. And it always got such great press from other podcasters. And it's actually the brainchild of this gay man whose on-air persona is Madge Weinstein, (laughs) a bloated um, left-wing lesbian. And so he puts out this viewpoint. He sounds just like a bloated left-wing lesbian in his podcast. So many of his comments were kind of really anti woman. They were really misogynist. I just felt like they weren't very respectful. He wasn't his whatever he might be like in real life, his on air persona was not very respectful towards women and it really began to make me angry. So I unsubscribed from his show. And do you know what? Madge Weinstein disappeared. He's not famous. He's just a podcaster. And if you unsubscribe to his show, He disappears. He's just gone. He's not in the media. He's not in the newspaper. He's not anywhere. So I don't really consider myself. I mean, that just really taught me podcasters aren't famous. We might have a small amount of notoriety amongst a few thousand people, but we're not really famous. And if you don't like something that we say or the show bugs you or you just unsubscribe and poof, we're gone.
2: That's true. Completely gone. And I think for me, I, I'm, I don't have the kind of following that you have, but it's, it's interesting the thought. I just think back to my childhood when I had not one, not two, but three imaginary friends. And I feel like, you know, when I podcast, I'm, you know, sometimes just talking to myself and, you know, people send me feedback, but it just, it's amazing to me when people, I'm amazed every time I get an email. I'm like, oh, I guess people really are listening, you know, even the numbers. I, I just, in my head, it's like I'm, I'm, you know, I have all these imaginary friends <laughs> or
1: something because, because not tangent, it's not tangible. I think that's actually pretty common. Yeah, it's just I mean, not. I think I said in one of my podcasts, I just sort of have this imaginary 30 people sitting on a lawn somewhere right. spinning and knitting. <laughs> right. I don't connect with this, with the number volume of it and when I start to think about it it actually kind of wigs me out a little and I just don't even want to go there yeah because I'm
2: thinking geez all those people heard me mispronounce your home state (laughs) (laughs) I mean because if you think about it if if you're on like an auditorium stage I mean because if I counted up all these people I could fill a small auditorium right And, and to be on stage mispronouncing words I mean it's terrifying, you know, but um, somehow I keep
1: doing this. But. <laughs> and because it's like in your house, you're doing it from your home, it's almost like being on stage in your underwear. It's, very, right. it's like this very vulnerable place. <laughs> I think one thing that really surprises me a lot about the response of the knitting community to some of the other podcasts, I've had some nasty comments, but some of the other podcasters, new knitting—you pod, know, as the new ones come up and sort of begin to get established, there's always a few naysayers that just want to pull them down. And I, I well I think what surprises me is that that really only happens in the knitting community. It doesn't happen in the podcasting community. you know what I mean do you mean
2: um, with people pulling them down or yeah,
1: and podcasters don't tear each other's shows down,
2: oh no, 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 so they say,
1: well, this one isn't for me or it's not to my taste or they unsubscribe or they just don't mention it, but nobody will sit and swag off no somebody else's work because we all know how hard it is to sit in front of a microphone and how vulnerable you are while you're doing it and how much of yourself goes into it and we wouldn't dream of raining on somebody else's podcast parade you know but in the in a sort of online knitting community i'm just i think i'm just surprised at the number of people that have posted negative comments on like the itunes you know rating system or gone on to people's blogs and posted nasty comments about their shows and it just, it, I'm really surprised, I'm really surprised by it. Well, it's, I think it's
2: disheartening too because you think especially knitters would kind of respect the fact that when whether you're making something with fiber or with technology and you know, this homemade show, isn't thats really what we're doing is making these homemade shows and
3: yeah.
2: you know, it's something that, um, yeah, I have respect for everybody that does this because it takes an ungodly amount of time and, you know, you're thinking, geez, I could be knitting right now, I could be, you know, sleeping, I could be, you know, all these other things that people forego for their shows, so um that is unfortunate, but do you think you'll ever stop? Yeah.
1: You do? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's really hard work. It's a lot of hard work and I am really far lazier than I <laughs> You know, I like to have a lot more downtime than, you know, the 10-week season actually allows me to have. I find, you know, I've got this new dog, and she really needs to be trained, and I don't have the hours in the day to really work with her as much as I'd like. I haven't spun really anything of note in six months, you know, since I began the podcast. I haven't really sat down at my spinning wheel, and I mean, it was like one Saturday where I just kind of went, right, today I'm spinning, and I did spin for one entire day, but that's like one day out of you know right yeah, six months October, and my knitting is now kind of like it's really hard for me to focus on something as big and demanding as a sweater. I mean, I've been knitting socks like crazy because they're mindless and I don't have to think about them.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: But um, so a lot of my other um, my other work is just kind of. The only thing that hasn't suffered is my writing, because I write a lot. I mean, every week I have to write something for the podcast, and it's actually made it easier in that respect. I can get to the nut of a story faster now because I'm doing it on a regular basis. So, So that's been good. But the other things, you know, the things that I do with my hands, the work of my hands, that's had to take a back seat to the podcast, which is why I know I will not be doing it forever. I think definitely through the end of the year there will be a Series 4, I know that, but beyond that, um, I don't know and do you I'd have, have to write a book? Oh, that'll be fun about knitting or what do you think yeah, I think I would like to um I'd like to turn the knitting news into into a book I think I I've can been th- thinking about that a lot lately, well, I think that would be
2: very popular and well received.
1: What I'd like to do is put it's kind of combine i mean if the podcast has taught me not anything it's that Knitters are really hungry for things to listen to while they knit,
3: uh-huh. or maybe
1: it's just crafters in general like to hear more than you can hear on NPR, or you know, knitting theme- themed things, crafting things that you can listen to um, while you're actually making. And I think there's a market for like audio craft books. I'm just not sure exactly what you know what that is yet. I don't know quite, I haven't figured out how, what that means yet. But that's kind of the direction that I'd like to head, actually, is to keep doing audio but just do it in a different format and, and not once a week because that's really, well, you know, it's exhausting.
2: <laughs> it is completely exhausting, and I work full-time, too, and have two little kids, and I do this because I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm trying to walk in the direction I want to eventually be going full-time. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the only way, because um, they're sitting around and saying, oh, you know, I really wish I was doing this, Craft related thing or this art related thing, and not doing it. You know, yeah. you kind of have to get out there and try it and start heading in the direction you want to go, and hope someone really cool comes along and kind of picks you up and says, "Hey, you want to take a ride with me?" You know. Yeah. And so that's kind of what I'm doing. But do you have a day job as well, or what? What do you no, do? No, I've been you're...
1: writing for a living for the past five years. Well, that's very cool. Yeah, yeah I mean, it is. I lo- I love it. It's a great job. I can do it in my pajamas. You know, I don't have to go anywhere. I've really, since I moved here, I live out in the country. So to go anywhere requires a tremendous effort and a will to be elsewhere. You know, you really have to, I have to get dressed and get in the car and go somewhere else. And so I've just tended to not. I mean, it's it almost seems like it's too much of an effort to get me outside of the house. But I've, I've really turned into a real recluse. I have a great little view. I have a nice garden, and I'm a mile and a half from the beach, and that's about as far as I want to drive. So yeah, I've, the writing keeps me here. I don't have to go anywhere. I don't know if I'll always be like this, but for right now, it's quite a reclusive little life, and I really like it. I really well,
2: like it. writers kind of need to separate themselves, and sometimes to get the best work out. So yeah, you could be on. It's some...
1: a very odd profession because you walk around, even when you're in the world, even when you're out there. As a writer, you're noticing things and making little notes in your notebook. And so even when you're out in the world, you're still kind of removed. You're like one step back from the action because there's a part of your brain always thinking, how would I describe this? What words would I use? Where can I use this in my novel? Where can I, could I write a magazine article about this? I mean, it's like the wheels are always turning. That kind of um, perspective takes you out, like away from people. You know, you're always the observer. You're not involved in it. You're always observing it, making notations, figuring out how to describe it. And the weird thing is that then you have this intense desire to communicate it all back to the people (laughs) that you are so studiously (laughs) avoiding because you're too busy writing down, you know, what they're wearing. (laughs) Right. So it's a a very weird, it's a very strange profession. Really, honest to God, if you can do anything else, I would advise you to do it.
3: (laughs) So what
1: <laughs> sort of things do you write? I'm working on fiction right now. I've just come back to fiction for the first time in about, I mean, since I've lived in Wales, I haven't, um, I haven't attempted any fiction. And then Sage from Quirky Nomads, this other podcast that, um, that I listened to, she asked, she had a call for submission that had me writing some fiction for the first time in a long time. And I remembered how much I liked it. And so now I'm really all fired up to, Dust off the novel, you know? Although, actually, I'm not even going to dust off the novel because the one that I was working on five years ago or six years ago takes place in Portland, Oregon. And I'm not in Portland, Oregon anymore. And I don't feel like I can really tell that story because I don't, you know, like I want to tell the stories of the places that are around me now. So I'm kind of casting my net around looking for the next story that I want to tell. Well,
2: we'll look forward to that book when
1: when you're ready to when and if. Yeah, yeah.
2: well, when <laughs> when I believe it will happen.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, um I think I think so too. I think it will happen too. Yeah, I
2: think yeah, you got to believe that. You yeah. know. Yeah, you got to believe in that. Do you have a schedule when you write? Cuz I'm interested in your creative life. Have
1: to be really, really unfocused creatively. I would just get up in the morning and I would decide what project I wanted to work on. And sometimes projects would carry on over multiple days or multiple weeks, but I was very, very unfocused. And the one thing that the podcast has really made me do is focus on time management because it is, as you know, once you start editing sound files, you can get really anal retentive about it and you could spend hours trying to perfect your audio quality and hours researching and hours writing. I mean, really, I could make the podcast into a full-time job but as it is, it's about a part-time job. I start on Wednesday. I start by looking usually on the Podsafe Music Network or on GarageBand for the music for that week's episode, and that kind of lays the the like. I do four songs, so that's almost like the four corners of the foundation. Mm-hmm. That's what I build the podcast on. And then people will send me things, and so I kind of put together all the news things at the beginning. People will send me promos, I decide, you know, which ones I'm going to use, what I have time for. I go through the comments and see which ones have audio quality that are, you know, acceptable. Um and which ones I want to use. And then I start kind of building the show and then hopefully I have that process the last thing I do is write the essay, my essay. It's written last every week. And sometimes I can't think of anything to say. <laughs> and it'll up that process will just push the podcast back because I can't really record until I have written something for me to say. And sometimes that inspiration, like the muse, just doesn't visit me until the eleventh hour. And there are have been a couple of Friday nights where I'm still uploading at ten o'clock at night and it's just miserable. I just wanna really want to just push my chair away from the desk and go drink a lot of gin. <laughs> <laughs> but I have to stay there and upload everything and write show notes and you know, at ten or eleven o'clock at night. Um and then the rest of the week is really Usually about one day a week to take care of correspondence and business stuff with the podcast. And that leaves me one working weekday to do anything else. And then the weekends, really I like to kind of have a weekend. I really try to, you know, that's where I'll get to knit or, um, you know, spin in the case of that one spinning day.
2: But I didn't ask you who, how old you were when you learned to knit.
1: 32. And who taught you? My friend Jean taught me to knit. Um she brought her knitting with her when we had a coffee date one day, and I saw it and thought, ooh, she could make me hand-knit sweaters. <laughs> you
2: know, I and remember I said, you talking
1: about this on yeah, your show. Yeah, so I asked her if she'd get me a sweater, and she said, no, but I'll teach you how to knit. So she was as good as her word, and it's just something that I I cottoned on to so quickly, and I fell in love with it so quickly. It's like once... um once my fingers got past the fumbly stage and once I learned how to read my knitting, really read the stitches and figure out what was happening there, there was just no stopping me. It was like sweater after sweater after sweater. I mean, I just I just went for it. Why do you love it so much? That's a really good question. I, I don't know if I can put it into words. There's something very calming and meditative about it. Um, I like that it's a skill that i'm I constantly improve. I don't think there's anybody that actually knits perfectly. you know there's always room for improvement. Um, I like being able to craft something to the very limit of my ability, so that everything I make is as good as it possibly can be. And even if, as a beginner, that wasn't very good, I was still pushing myself to be as good as I possibly could be in that knitted item. And I think that's the part that really keeps me coming back to it because I'm, no garment is ever perfect. Nothing is ever, I mean, when you knit, nothing is perfect in knitting, ever. So there's always that little bit of something else that you can strive for There's, a you know, I guess I'm just always I'm aiming for perfection with the knowledge that I'm never going to achieve it. But it doesn't stop me from striving. That's wonderful.
2: Do you do other crafts besides knitting?
1: Yeah, I'm starting to get into doll making, actually. Oh,
2: I yes, because yes, you made, uh, isn't it a, like a I mini day? Yeah. day. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: And I really, really enjoyed it a lot more than I ever thought I was going to because I would never have made dolls if somebody hadn't asked me specifically, Will you make me a doll that makes that looks like me? I would not have bought a book on knitted toys. I would not, you know, I'm not, I never really considered myself a doll person. And then I made these small little humanoid figures, and they were so much fun to make. I guess it's because I listened to their show, and so I kind of have an idea of their personality. And they sent me bunches of pictures of he and Gary, and so I really worked hard to get the detail right on these and to dress them in things that I thought they would wear. And something about that whole process of thinking small was just very, very compelling. And I started looking online for more knitted dolls to see if anybody else was doing it. And what I found was this whole art doll community that really is another one of those crafting communities that only exists in the U.S. and maybe little pockets elsewhere around the world but. The crafting community is just so much bigger and deeper and richer and wider in the U.S. than any other country. I'm not sure why that is. I think maybe one theory is that we're a very wealthy country, you know, Mm -hmm. in the West in general. And that buys us leisure time. and, And also the wherewithal to purchase materials, to be creative. But I could be completely wrong. (laughs) It's just a theory. Um, Well, that
2: sounds quite believable, so we'll just go with it. (laughs) We'll go with it, okay. Um,
1: So I started looking at all these different art dolls that people were making, and some, I mean, they're just all different forms, all different. I mean, just a huge range of materials and experience goes into making these wonderful little dolls or like expressions of people's personalities crafted in a humanoid form. And with all the subtlety and nuance, and then the viewer also kind of projects their own experience into the doll when they look at it. And so that began to really pique my interest, and I started getting some books on, you know, art doll making and how how these dolls are formed. And I kind of started at the beginning. I'm doing really primitive pieces, you know. um, The first dolls were just handkerchiefs, something stuffed. In and then, you know, tie it around, and you make this sort of round head, and then you tie a knot in each of the four corners, and that's the hands and feet, and that's a handkerchief doll. And sticks and twigs and found materials can be dolls, and corn husk dolls. And so there's like really primitive forms of dolls that came first, and I just thought since I'm really new to doll making, I'll start with the really primitive things and work my way up and just see if I strike on a form that really speaks to me.
2: So are you making all these different kinds of dolls?
1: Yeah, I'm assembling materials and and yeah, I'm starting to work on all these little different kinds of just different kinds of dolls. And I mean, I'll just make one and then stick it in my little you know, one of those shadow box frames from IKEA and hang it on the wall. And there you go. Very (laughs) cool.
2: I've made a doll. So how many dolls do you have now?
1: I've only made six. And I'm still playing around with, you know, with the form. I mean, after the sticks and twigs and stuff, um, then come the sort of outline dolls where you, you, you sew a form that is the outline of a human body and then you stuff it. And then from there you can get into needle sculpting where you actually can contour facial features and... Um, you can piece dolls together out of fabric. Um, you can make them out of clay or porcelain. Some of them are fabric bodies that are stuffed with wool or stuffed with sand, or some are just a head on a conical shaped body that 's stuffed with you know beans or like a bean bag mm-hmm. and then embellished and Some of them have like wire armature that support the bodies and i mean it's just a whole range of different types of dolls that you can make and um, And I just find them a very wonderful, expressive. Art form, they're very very cool. I think everyone should try and make a little doll of themselves. Yeah, I think that'd those be those a great two thing. That I started with were dolls for you know one to, re- to represent Tanya and one for me. And those were the first two I made after Dave and Gary.
2: Oh yeah, and did, were those knitted or what medium did you use
1: for sticks and twigs? No
2: sticks and, and twigs. twigs. You went. With, you put all this time into the Dave and Gary dolls, and then <laughs> make your made <laughs> yours out of sticks then and then twigs.
3: Me, like <laughs> <They> little twigs. <laughs>
2: When you listen to these different shows, and I know what I've enjoyed about your show is we get little snippets of your life, um, interspersed with all this great information about knitting and the stories that people share. And, um, cause I mean, obviously the two of us are at different points in our lives. I mean, I am, have two young children, and, um, it sounds like your nest is now empty. Um, yeah, yeah I just heard about your, your, how many,
1: how many kids do you have? I have two. The oldest boy is 23 and he lives in Portland. And he um he builds computers; he's very techy, and my youngest son lives in Wales, and he's as you know, just moved out on his own. In fact, I'm sitting here in his former room that is now my office, it's been repainted and new carpet and um and my my mother's quilt hanging on the wall and it's just lovely. I really miss him, I do I was even saying last night, I just really miss him. I miss his company, you know. He's fun to have around. Both my boys have a you know, great sense of humor, and they're just fun to have around. But, oh, man, I so love my office. I love my <laughs> office again. <laughs> so it's, I almost feel guilty about, you know, how much I love it and how nice it looks in here. You know, the walls are covered with art, and my projects are everywhere, and my computer, and... You know, it's mine, mine, all mine. <laughs> well, so
2: did you... So you, It sounds like you attracted uh, at least one of your sons to Wales with you, or did he have Yeah,
1: head- I'm really... I'm very, very happy. I worked really, really hard to get the first one over here, too. I'm still working on him, and privately, I have not given up all hope, although he has just landed this dream job that he absolutely loves, and they're paying him lots of money, and he just... So it's just, I'm thrilled for him, but when he told me this, my heart just kind of sunk a little because I realized he's really sinking in roots.
2: Was it really hard for you as a mom to to move out of the country
1: and leave my kids behind? Yes. It was the hardest, hardest thing. I hated it. And for the first couple of years here, I was just convinced that they were going to join me. The whole idea here was they wanted to spend some time with their dad. They wanted to get to know their father. It was going to be important. For me to get set up here so that I could support them and have a home that they could come to, and so you know, I, I my intention was to be here for six months, and then they would come, they would both come and join me. I guess they just sort of settled in to their lives in North Carolina, and neither one of them wanted to leave, and and so I just kind of reluctantly decided that okay, well, there there's still time; it's okay, stay another year. It's you know, but it's been that's been the hardest part was going away and leaving both of my boys behind because have they had they lived with you at the time that you left yeah or? they lived they lived with me for you know for all of their young lives. I mean, Christopher was fifteen when he went to go live with his dad um and Zach was about the same age three years later. It's when I moved over here, and Zach went to live with his dad and join his brother in North Carolina so that's been a really's been really tough, but we're you know. We're through the hard part now, and my oldest son is an adult. You know, he has his own life. He's building his own life in Portland, and that's what I always hoped he would do. You know, that's why you raise them, so that you can let them go out into the world and have. Yeah, an yeah. And I can't really complain that I raised this strong, independent son, <laughs> right. Now that he won't come back and you know
2: Yeah, some people have trouble getting their kids out of their basements, you know. Um so
1: <laughs> you don't <laughs> have that you know, problem. Blessings.
2: Yeah, yeah. So yeah, you've you've gotten them to the successful completion of, you know, the high yeah. school years and on to the next challenge. So that's that's wonderful. And so uh let's see here. We've we've kinda gone all over the place here. Um yeah. do you have any advice for people that are you listening and they're either writers or Artists are just creative types in general, and they want to kind of get the next thing going in their life. Um, a lot of people listen while they do projects, uh, weekend crafters, people who wish they might be doing some of these things full-time at some point. Um, it sounds like you, you probably could go out and, and slave away in a cubicle if you wanted to. Um, no I actually couldn't. You could.
1: <laughs> no, <laughs> Why? Seriously? Really? Like, you don't know how often I have wished for like 40 fewer IQ points so that I could be happy working at a 7-Eleven. <laughs> seriously, <laughs> my life would be much less complicated if I weren't all so artsy. It is really like a blessing and a curse I think to be in touch with your own creative spirit because you're driven to make things and yet we live in a society that doesn't value made things but you know puts more stock, and wants you to go work in a cubicle so that you can make money so that you can buy mass-produced things instead of make the things that you want, which are ultimately a better quality and greater beauty. So it's really, I, I can't. I am completely unemployable. I cannot work for anybody else. I can't go work at a job. I've tried. If I could do it. God, I just think life would be so much simpler. It's really ai mean, being an artist is a hard road to walk. It just is. And the key to being really successful at it is to make it a priority in your life. Decide that this is what you are. This is, you know, this is how you were born. It's like having brown hair or blue eyes. You have a creative soul and a creative spark, and you feel driven to express that. Then you must make time for it. And to figure out how to do it full-time is just a matter of creating little income streams for yourself. Figure out how to make money outside the system. And it doesn't have to be all of your income coming from one place. And that's the piece of the puzzle that I missed for so many years. Now I have my income that comes from five or six different things that I do. And each time I find something else, I think, oh, I can add that too. Figure out which is going to be the most lucrative or um, what the trade-off in terms of time. You know, it's all... It will be different for everybody, I think. But that's the real key to doing it full-time is to start creating tiny little streams of income. Okay, you're a jewelry maker and you like to make pins. Figure out a way to make lots of them and then find a market for them. And okay, you can't support yourself entirely on making little pins, but it can be one little income stream. And maybe you can cut back to four days a week full, you know, at, a, at your full-time day job. Maybe you don't have to be full-time anymore. You know, at what point can you cut back to three days a week? What other thing can you do that would generate the income from that day? And before you know it, you're spending more time. The whole process of being creative allows you to think more creatively, I think. And then you'll find um, your mind going off in all these different directions of ways that you can earn that are outside the normal work-a-day world. And then all you have a life and a studio and you're a working artist and that's, you know, that's it. I know it sounds really simple and basic, but I think it is really simple and basic. It's a matter of people just deciding to do it, deciding that it's important enough.
2: I'm thinking someday something will come of this, you know. And if not, I'm having a great time talking to all these cool people. So, um, but I think
1: I, it will. I mean, don't discount the work that you do as a mother as being, like, not creative. That's a really... You know, that's a real creative thing in itself. There's not much, I mean, come on, you're creating life here. Oh yeah, you're well, up Little people, that is a really, really important piece of creative work. And if that takes precedence, if, if you have to work at a 40 hour a week job so that you can do that really well, raise children and, you know, support them well, then that is not, um, a lesser value than, being able to knit a sock, you know? Right. So maybe you can make time for smaller amounts of creativity if your parenting is is the main thing in your life. Or if you... I don't want people to feel badly because they're, you know, going to work on a Monday morning, on the bus and thinking, oh, man...
2: I would do these little um, art and craft shows and sell chenille scarves and wool blankets and and all these things. I'd spend hours making after work. I would sell chenille scarves for, like, I think, thirty five dollars, which is actually pretty cheap when you consider how much time I put into it. I had mm-hmm. no idea how to price things,
1: and but and people there's no money in no not at all handcrafts. There just isn't any money in it. Right. It's as simple as that. But if you take those same skills that you use for producing the crafts that you use to beautify your life, the things that you use to, I mean, um, I'm trying to think of a way to put this without like a real strict dividing line between the arts and craft, because I really hate when people draw a real line between it. But for some reason, there is a line that exists between art and craft. And on the one side of it, the things that are produced that we call craft have very little value. In the market. Right, right. And on the other side of that line, things that are produced that we call art have a great deal of value. Now, whether their intrinsic value, the disparity in their intrinsic value is correct um, is kind of immaterial. I mean, the fact remains that the dividing line is there. So what you want to do is just note that fact and make sure that when you go to sell something in the open market and make your living as, you know, as a creator that you are selling on on the correct side, on the side of that line that will get you more money. <laughs> right. <You know? laughs> so if you're going to produce things that you're going to call crafts, like anything that has a function, basically, um, people, I guess, for some reason, they don't see that as an art. They see that as a craft. Whereas if you produce something that doesn't have a function, it could be essentially the same thing. If you took that piece of weaving and we hung it on a wall instead... Oh, yeah, collective. It's worth, you know, 10 times the value that you would sell it for as a scarf. Mm -hmm. Even if it were just draped over a pole, (laughs) start calling it a scarf and start calling it a wall hanging, and all of a sudden it's worth, you know, $600. Right, it is funny how that happened. Yeah. Yeah, well, so I definitely. It's just about being aware that there there is a definite dividing line between art and craft, and don't try to make money on the craft side of it. No,
2: it, well, I learned that. I definitely learned that, and I I don't see myself quitting my day job to weave full time <laughs> because
1: most that was, it would be lovely to weave full time. Yeah, yeah, you know. yeah. I'd love to just knit full time. It would be wonderful. Well, I think. But, um, what you you're doing?
2: It. Well, it's really interesting too because you've been yeah. able to get some. Um, you have a grant right now for your yeah, for your show. The arts that, that's grant. really
1: awesome. And did do they approach you, or
2: did you just decide? Geez, I
1: got to figure out a way to finance. No, it. I decided I needed. I mean, no, the arts council doesn't give you money without. <laughs>
2: I didn't know if it was different over in Wales. No,
1: it has <laughs> if they go door to door, you know, an application process that you have to go through, and really. I didn't have a hope in hell that it, well, I was actually going to get this grant. I did not even psych myself up for it. I thought it would be um, that I thought it was a real long shot. And it was only after I got it that I started talking to people, and they kind of said, "No, you really did tick all the boxes." You know, they want to support craft at the Arts Council, and knitting is a craft. That's Much fantastic. Used as an art form by lots of people, it's still considered craft and so they fund it and also, um, the podcast is kind of produced in Wales and it's showcasing Wales this next series and we'll be talking to lots of Welsh artists and so I mean for a lot of reasons, I guess I got the funding for this.
2: So do you have a kind of a long-term relationship then? I mean for next season they're, they're sponsoring that as well and? No, I
1: have to reapply. Well, they have larger grants that are available, but you have to apply for the smaller ones first and then Prove that you're able to wisely spend the money, I guess. You have to have a kind of a track record. With and it. not putting an addition on your house or something. Yeah, yeah exactly. A, <laughs> a new craft room, you know. <laughs> um, so once you've proved it, so there's really, there's very strict guidelines about the use of the money. I have to spend it in precisely the ways that I spell out in my budget. And then uh, there's an accounting that gets done at the end of the project where I have to fill out forms and show them, you know, with receipts and, and um and basically turn things in and show that I have actually used the money as I said I was going to. Um and then those are only once a year you can apply for one of those grants. Then there are larger ones that um that you can apply for um I think 5 to 5 to 20,000 pounds and then the other one is like 20 to 50,000 pounds. Um And then there's a whole other range. I mean, they have writer's bursaries that you can apply for. So if I wanted to, like, you know, write a novel, I could apply to be funded for that. And um, there's just a whole bunch of different. But there's a really finite amount of money that they have. It's even less money this year than it was last year because they cut the budget. So the grants are really quite hotly contested. And for every person who gets one, there are 50 that get turned away. So it was really quite something that I actually got this one and whether or not the Arts Council will continue to fund. When I mean, they do it project by project, so this project is Series 3, I would have to come up with a different type of project, something outside the normal realm of my usual practice and um, in order to apply for another one. Uh, so I really kind of saw the grant as a way to fund Series 3 with the hope of raising awareness, generating more um, of a listener base and attracting some full-time, long-term sponsorship for Series 4. And then if I can actually find sponsorship, um, which in this case is going to come probably from a corporation or a, you know, if I can find someone to actually sponsor the podcast for me, then um, I'll probably do it for another year. So I could conceivably see podcasting for two years beyond that. Like, well, that's just too far down the road to even... I can't think about that. <laughs>
2: So, well, congratulations to you, uh, finding, you know, getting the grant and, and with funding and everything, because that, I imagine oh, that makes the burden a little less. Um, you can justify the hours you're putting into yeah, it. Yeah, I
1: can now, because I'm actually getting paid to produce Series 3, which is great. And I have two small sponsors for Series 3 I'm very excited about. A couple of people approached me back when I, like in the first series, when I was talking about wanting to get, trying to decide how to fund the podcast and how to, how I can make money with it. Um, And then I wanted to maybe do some green advertising, and so I got contacted by a number of different businesses, and a couple of them kind of were really persistent about wanting to sponsor the podcast, and these are small businesses. Um, One woman who makes these incredible soya candles, and another woman who does hand painted yarn. And so they are the co-sponsors. The grant only funded 90% of the project costs, so the other 10% are being funded by the um, these two small businesses, and I really hope it works for them. I really, gosh, I hope they just see a huge, you know, <laughs> upsurge in their business, and that they both do really, really well out of it. Well, that
2: sounds great because I think that's one of the hard, hard things about podcasting is that you don't—you want to keep producing it, you want to do a quality job, but at the same time, you don't want to sell out to corporate America. I I mean- know,
1: it's—it um, is a really fine line that you have to walk. I like the fact that both of these uh, businesses are run by women. And that they're both startup businesses. I really would like to support them. They've been listeners from the very beginning. And they also, you know, since they're small companies, and they're kind of companies of just one or two people. They're producing things in an ethical way. They're using sustainable resources. They're, you know, um, I can get behind them. They're green businesses. I don't think I could allow time and space or support businesses that weren't doing business ethically. This is a fit for me. And also, they were kind enough to send me samples of their product so that I could try them. And so I don't feel like I'm trying to sell people something that goes against my, um, my value system. I, these are products that I've tried, and I think they're great. I feel like I'm, I'm doing people a service, you know, <laughs> by, by bringing them to people's awareness because they're really good, and they're, you know they're women-owned businesses, and they deserve support. And they're, you know, they're supporting the podcast that people are downloading and listening to for free, so they deserve support for that. Well, so I think... I'm really, you, I'm very, very happy to have them on
2: board. Well, it's a, you're a great example of someone who's uh, kind of going about this in a, a very smart way, um, in a very um, ethical way. So that's, that's great to see. So you have all these Michigan
1: ties. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah. Well, I was there when I was um, married with my brief marital incarceration... And he was in the Air Force.
2: So, how old were you when you got married?
1: Uh, twenty. I know, I was so young. So I got
2: married succeeded. when I was twenty. Well, I was twenty-one when I got married. But so, I mean, this has been a good decision for me. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, don't worry. Yeah,
1: <laughs>
2: but worry. So, so you, you know, got married um, at twenty, and how long were you married? Six years. Yeah. And you refer to it as an incarceration.
1: <laughs> yeah, I pretty much do. Yeah. It was not. Um, it wasn't a good choice, but I got two beautiful children out of the deal, which kind of makes up for it. Yeah, I was just too young, and um, and I married a a young man from the south whose expectations of, you know, what a wife is and what a woman is, it, it, it were just completely opposite my own. And to be honest, I think I'm, I got married because I was 20 years old, and I didn't know what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And and so I kind of got married to just sort of forestall any decision-making process. I see. So I wouldn't have to actually decide, you know, what to major in in college. Um, so I got married, and then I went to university in um, Missouri. We lived in Missouri for four years and then lived in Michigan for three. So I guess I was, yeah, Six years, six and a half. What did you study in college? Um, Interior design. Okay. That's where I started.
2: Because I think a lot of times, whether it's a if someone's in a bad relationship or a bad job or something, that they need to make a change. I mean, was that something that was difficult? The
1: divorce um, kind of side-railed my my plans. Like, I was moving into a creative profession that, had I stayed on that path, um, I probably would have been very, you know... I would have found very fulfilling. Um, But I had to support two small kids, so I went through a couple of corporate jobs where I was, you know, making good money, but my kids were being raised by somebody else. Um, And it was really hard when they were little. It was really difficult, and I didn't have much of a creative life when they were little. I think as I got older, I began to really feel the lack of that, um, like just feeling the pull to be more creative. And I started writing when the kids were kind of in middle school, and um and the jobs that I took began to be more on the periphery of creative life, you know um like I designed kitchens, okay, well, it's not really interior design, but it's sort of like interior design, and it let me use parts of my brain that I wasn't using selling electronics you know and i just kind of slowly came back to it but i don't think i really came fully into creative life until i moved here and and then by the time zach joined me i was really kind of i had both feet already in the pool so it wasn't like i could run back and i did actually get a temp job when he first arrived here to help pay for his college education but I only temped for about four, it took like an office temp job for about four months. But it was so dismally paying <laughs> that it was just really easier to just like, okay, well, there's got to be a better way. <laughs> so um, that's when I started really creating little income streams for myself. And the writing has always been when I started writing for Interweave Magazine about five or six years ago. And that's kind of just been taking along. And then I just started, you know. So it just it took a while for me to really... Be fully present in the creative process, you know, for really, me to really decide that this was all I could do. That working was gonna kill me slowly. Working for somebody else is just gonna kill me slowly, you know.
2: Is writing your main revenue stream then?
1: Yeah, it's the main. It's the main one. It's not a really huge one, but it is the main one. Um, podcasting is actually kind of catching up to it, though, and I imagine that in the next year or so, it probably will be, you know. Um, uh, be up there with the writing,
0: That's and really then what's cool. nice
1: about it is that once um I kind of have this idea that off in the future, maybe not for series three or series four, but maybe if I find a bigger sponsor who can really support the podcast and pay me to do it, um that what I'll do is sign up with one of those service providers you know that will tap advertising. And then I really will have advertising in the podcast, but it will only be for, like, businesses that I can really support, you know, mm-hmm. like the whiskey manufacturer in Scotland <laughs> <laughs> or the you know, Lakeland Limited. <laughs> I have, you know, purveyor of every good thing for your home. It's just fabulous. I love that catalog so much. <laughs> oh, boy. So well, I, I'm hoping that at some point, And then with... Uh, um with you know a little fifteen second or ten second ad tacked onto the beginning of the po- of every single podcast that gets downloaded i don 't really have to do any more. <laughs> they can just be downloaded and I just get paid
3: mm-hmm. so
1: that 's the key to a good revenue stream i 'm finding is that you do a lot of work on the front end and then you can just sort of sit back on the back end and let it kind of just all tick away and um and so that 's what i'm going to try.
2: There's one other um, project that you're working on that I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about. Now, I saw on the um, Dill surfing around and saw that you're in the process of recording the the novel, The Age of Innocence.
1: Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah, how's that going?
1: Um, It's going very well. I got to a point where I just, I wasn't required to actually um, do anything with it. There was no deadline around it. And so a lot of other things kind of crept in the way. So I got to about the midway point of the novel. Which I hadn't read in a long time. I remembered that I loved it, but I hadn't read it in several you know, many years.
2: And it's by Edith Wharton,
1: is that right? Yeah, it's yeah. by Edith Wharton. I when I found LibriVox, my first thought was, Oh my god, I'd love to read Jane Austen. And then as soon as I thought that I realized, oh, I can't read Jane Austen because she's a British author and it just would seem wrong to have her read in an American accent. Now many people have taken chapters and have read, you know, Jane Austen's novels for LibriVox, but for me it just felt like Blasphemy!
2: <laughs>
1: so I, mean, I
2: love all the novels by Jane Austen.
1: Can you explain can right o- what
2: the, what the pro- program is that you're involved with? Because I didn't do anything to set this oh, up okay. at all. Oh, okay.
1: Well, LibriVox is a uh, an organization that takes works that are in the public domain um, and reads them and creates audio books. And, and you can sign up to work with LibriVox and you can... You can run a whole project yourself and, and and assign chapters of different novels. I mean, the novels are basically group projects, or you can suggest a novel that you'd like to do as a solo project. And they usually advise that people, when they're starting out, take on a group project and agree to read a chapter or two of a particular, whatever project happens to be going around. And then, you know, little by little, the novel gets pieced together, and you get all these different voices, and some are professional broadcast quality and others are not and but it's a really nice mix of people and you know they have like a forum the LibriVox forum it's really a nice community because everybody's really smart and they read right right so they're nice people to hang out with and so how did you get involved so I so I found this Adam Curry is the one who basically said it in in the daily source code I found the show through the um, LibriVox organization through him and um, because I don't ever do anything the easy way, I didn't take on a chapter or two. I um, I took on a whole book. <laughs> and and now halfway into it, I am realizing the wisdom of starting with <laughs> a chapter or two.
2: How many hours have you recorded, already?
1: That must be like ungodly. Um, no, it's not no. too bad, actually. Because the chapters are pretty short. I think there's 33 chapters in the book, and I've done about half of them. And the first, I've only edited one. <laughs> I just, just, it's just depressing, even as I say it out loud. Um, I've only edited one segment, like chapters one, two, and three. It's the o- That's the only one that's actually been edited. And that first segment of chapters one, two, and three is about an hour long. So the chapters are pretty short. The book is not that big. Um, I imagine that when it's all said and done, it's probably going to be, you know, three chapters will take up about an hour.
2: Um, well, that's going to be just
1: a fantastic
2: contribution for you
1: to make. Something that I've always wanted to do, I did actually, um, probably six or seven years ago, um, I decided that I wanted to get into doing voiceover work, and that I wanted to read books on tape. I had checked out a couple from the library and read them and thought, I can do that. And, I mean, I took, um, I was on the speech team in college, you know, and oral interpretation was my forte. And I trophied in oral interpretation. As soon as I heard my first talking book, I thought, I can do that and i tried contacting several publishers to you know to inquire about the process what do you need for me to submit how do i get started doing this and i was just kind of met uniformly with this sort of sneering kind of sniffy well our authors usually read our books you know oh, who geez. are you like the red queen and alice in wonderland you know <laughs> so i i just dropped the idea
2: i and, can't believe that because you have just the, the smoothest speaking voice. I mean, it's just fabulous. And, it, uh, you know, you call up and with a smooth voice <laughs> and they're turning you away. They're that's,
1: turning me away. That's ridiculous. But, I'm, unless you've actually listened to my broadcast voice, I, I guess, I, I've always thought of my voice as just being unremarkable. I, I, it's not something that, you know, we all have skills and talents. And, I mean, I have some pretty odd ones. Like, um, I was told by a yoga instructor once that I have the feet of a dancer. They're long and they're very, they have like a nice arch to them. So, okay, there's one of my strengths. That's my, you know, <laughs> I have the feet of a dancer. No one ever told me I had a nice voice. I had no idea, none, until I started doing the podcast and everyone started giving me feedback saying what a great voice I have. I didn't think of it as a strong suit and it wasn't certainly anything that I thought of when I was going into um, the whole podcasting thing. That's one of those things that's kind of come as a surprise to me. It's like, oh, really? I do.
2: Yeah, because I think it's it's very easy to listen to, and you probably don't have to do a lot of editing. Yes, I do. You do. Yeah. Okay, I find that surprising because it's, it's, <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, I just you're smooth, where I am not as smooth. I'm kind of the rough around the edges, you know, approach. But
1: no, but uh, I listen to your podcast. You're not as rough as you think you are. Well,
2: I think my, I definitely would not be. I'm not. If I started to say I was going to do voiceovers, people might think, "Well, Jen, you might want to stick to your podcast. <laughs> you know, I mean, I realize that's not that's not my that's not what I'm coming to it with the strength. I I like to be able to draw people out um, and
1: and you know hear their
2: stories and kind of
1: just see where things well, you go. Did. You elicited a lot more personal information for me than I was ever planning on. Well, you
2: noticed so. how we didn't get into that to the end, right? You know. <laughs> well, what I do is I give people the license too, because sometimes people go there, and sometimes people don't, and, um, you know, of course, you know, I I want people to be comfortable with what they say, you know, on the show, I don't want someone to say something, and I don't want to trick people, like, say, okay, yeah. Brenda, we're going to talk about knitting, and then I ask you something else, and you're like, wait a minute, you know, because I want to be able to still maintain contact with you.
1: If I could go on my show and say, that's Jen, man. Well,
2: you know what's so funny, is you said, one time, you, you made a comment about somebody's new podcast, and you said, you know, that the person, and I can't remember what show it was, but you said something like... Um yeah, the first episode is out, and it's really, you know, a good quality show and really quite impressive for a first episode. And then you pause, and you're like, Dad, bitch. That was fine, Mitchell. Yeah, it wasn't. It was me, yeah. And, and I, was like, I was like, oh, no. Like, 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 I was kind of feeling for the person thinking, I hope they take that in a good way. She did. She totally got that it was a joke. She really did. Is Tanya available for a second?
1: Yes, he is. Okay. Can I talk
2: to him? Yes, I would love to. Here you are. Talk
1: to Jennifer. Jennifer, Tanya,
2: Tanya, Jennifer. Hello, Jennifer. Hi. I'm curious on what you have to say about all this podcasting business. Do you Do you listen to Brenda's show? Oh
1: yes. yes.
2: Yes. Every week. Yeah. And do you knit?
3: I don't knit. No. Um, I studied ceramics and I paint a bit, but I don't knit.
2: How has has the podcast changed your
3: life? Um, I mostly lose Brenda on a Friday. (laughs) She keeps saying, oh, I'm going to record it on a Thursday this week. Um, And doesn't. As she's getting uh, more proficient with the software,
1: rather than doing it more quickly,
3: she's adding more bells and whistles, more backing music, and playing
1: around with it a lot more.
2: Do you think you'll ever do a podcast yourself sometime? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you um you know giving us a chance to hear your voice. All right.
1: Yeah. Thanks, bye Bye.
2: Tanya sounds very nice.
1: She is very nice. Yeah. I'm very very lucky to have her in my life. We have like complementary disciplines, you know. She trained um in ceramics. She has her masters in ceramics. And she paints now. She does these incredible abstract like an abstract expressionist and her paintings are wonderful we have them all over the house and and she carves and she's really good at like um carving is like taking away stuff right reveal something underneath Mm -hmm. i can't do that to save my life you know i've I've tried carving a potato once to make a stamp and it was (laughs) horrible so i mean we just have these really nice this nice compliments of skills with each other. She's very quiet and soft-spoken. I'm very outgoing and bossy. And we're just a really good fit for each other. Yeah, well, it sounds like it. That's wonderful.
2: And is she a full-time artist?
1: No, she actually works in technology. Oh, wow. She basically, she started um, in art school. She was like one of the first people to actually see the value and the benefit of the computer as a tool um, in, in making and so she started using the computer to create um artwork which she then used to create silk screen like screens for silk screening oh yeah um so she started using the computer as um as a tool in art school and then kind of got drawn into the technology side of things and now she works for um the council which is sort of like um like working for a county you know okay um, it's a government job, and she works. She's been working putting broadband into all the schools in Carmarthenshire, which is the county just next to the one where we live. And now she's working with the uh, head teachers and um, people in the council to sort of devise methods of best utilizing this incredible resource that the schools have at their disposal and helping to create content and ways for people to play with the technology and learn. Because it's not enough to just get it there. Um, It needs to be utilized. So she's kind of come full circle back to this, what she first started doing with ceramics, was creating what she called parish maps, or maps of her geography in play. And, And so now she's helping kids create a real picture of who they are and where they are in the world that they can use to connect with other students around the world and so she's just kind of really come full circle. It's it's just too much I mean I'm very proud of the work that she does, you can probably tell. Yeah, but it I sounds hate great them, I though guess, to say that she just puts broadband at the school because it just falls so short. Right, and yeah. She's there's incredibly creative and she just came up with all of this on her own, you know, started shopping all the ideas around the different people who all like them and now it's all kind of coming together in a way that is so progressive for this little area of Wales. It's really um it's really quite extraordinary. What she's managed to create, and it's just amazing. She's really an amazing person. Oh, that's wonderful! So glad that you guys
2: are in this uh, very creative house you have. You know, just uh, with all the ideas bouncing back and forth, it sounds like you guys are um, must have some great conversations.
1: Yeah, we do about your
2: projects and everything. That
1: yeah, we really do. I rely on her so much. There's so m- I mean, there is a great deal of Tanya in every podcast. Usually, in the essays, she'll say something or spark something, and um sometimes it's all me, but then she'll like find a nuance in there that I had not thought of and um and yeah, she was really quite instrumental in the grant writing process. It's just it's really great. There's a nice play of energy between the two of us. You know, I would wish this kind of relationship for everyone. This is what every marriage should be.
2: Yeah, and it's and, and I think I know I value so much um, you know, my husband's role and he's the tech guy that helps this podcast, Be What It Is. And he also um, is a great sounding board for my ideas. Tell us what can people expect next from you.
1: Next season is all about a sense of place. And I feel the connection really strongly to the Welsh landscape. Um, I know that wherever I am in the world, I always really connect with with the landscape around me and it sort of informs my work no matter what I do which creative you know direction I'm going in my work is informed by by where I happen to be in the world and um, and so I'm just really interested to see how that works for people's knitting it's just kind of exploring that sense of place with um with my listeners as well um, and when does and it's the not season something that I even think that I thought about until I'm moved here, how how much your location and where you are in the world, um, how it speaks through your work, and I'm sure it speaks through everyone's knitting. And I think it's important to pay attention to how that happens and to what kind of really what a record that you are leaving behind when when you complete a piece of knitting. How much of yourself and how much of where you are in the world comes out in that fabric. And it's just another way of looking at knitting I think. Another lens to look at your knitting through.
2: And does that kinda of take you back when you talk about you you're thinking about place and, and the role that knitting plays and, and connection and all that. Does it, does it take you back to when you learned to knit?
1: Um, yeah, it takes me back to Portland and the things that I knit in Portland and the things that I the fiber that I chose when I was living there and a lot of it was, you know, practical things. Um, like certain weights of wool are better for that climate than others. And the same thing is true here. Um, But there are things that I knit when I was living there that they work in my wardrobe, they're colors that I would normally wear, but then I move, and and I'm here now, and I just notice that I'm not really wearing many of those garments that I knit a long time ago. They're the ones that... Um, you know, I have these, like, vacuum bags where you can suck all the air out, mm-hmm. and I pack my sweaters in those away. When I put, put them away for the winter, I put them in there so that they don't get musty smelling and I don't have to worry about moths and stuff. So and I noticed that there was a whole bag of sweaters that just never got unpacked one winter, and then they never got unpacked the next winter, and I don't really want to get rid of them, but they're not garments that I'm wearing, and I and I can't, it's not that their style has changed because they're all really timeless. It's just they're wrong for whales for whatever reason. They don't fit here. They're specific to, I have no doubt that if I moved back to Portland, these sweaters would come out and I would be wearing them again.
2: That's no really doubt. interesting.
1: Yeah. So it just made me think about ways that the landscape and the, and how you are influences the style of knitting or your choice of colors or the choice of fiber, um, and how, how maybe that comes out in ways that you're not even aware of, you know, that we're not aware of while we're knitting. And, and I know that there are some knitwear designers in Wales. Sasha Kagan is one I know who is really influenced by the landscape of mid Wales. And I've been up around there and now I look at her designs and I can actually see where they come from. So I'll be speaking with her about how these things play out. Jean Moss also spends quite a bit of time in Wales and I'm hoping to connect with her as well. And then there are um uh, uh there's a couple that do natural dyeing that live not too far away from me and they're retired and they've been doing this for years. They teach courses in dyeing with natural, you know, natural ingredients, dying with natural plants. And um so I'll be speaking with them and just really looking at how, how Wales is reflected in the textiles, you know, that are being produced today, looking at the history of that and exploring ways in which the landscape kind of comes out either sideways or directly in the knitted fabric and then asking people to participate and tell me, you know, what is the view from your window? What does it look like where you are and, and, and how is that reflected in your knitting? So that's basically the idea. Behind Series 3.
2: And when does Series 3 start?
1: Series 3 starts the first Friday in July, which I believe is the 7th of July. I'll be starting, um, I'll be beginning Series 3 the weekend before that at Woolfest in Cumbria, um, which is Britain's first fiber festival. And I didn't go to that last year, and um, I've been kicking myself (laughs) because I really, you know, it's the only fiber festival. In Britain, and it's a long ways away from me. I mean, I'm at the bottom of Wales. This is like in Britain, above Wales and beyond. You know, almost up to Scotland. It's in the northwest corner of England. Wow. So it's about um, it's about an eight hour drive, and there's no straight shot. Um, there's a couple of motorways, which are kind of you know freeway styles, but it, it's a lot of two lane highway. So it's going to be a long, slow journey. So we're taking our time.
2: (laughs) Bring a camera. Yeah, I'm
1: going to be taking pictures, and I'll take the recording equipment. Well, it
2: sounds like you got a great plan,
1: and you're ready
0: to go record at Woolfest.
2: Thanks a lot. You have a great day. Have a good Sunday. Thanks you too. Bye. Bye.
0: Thanks to Brenda for being such a great guest, URAK sister, and I really appreciate your time. And your willingness to be in the Craft Sanity hot seat and share a little bit about your life. I sure enjoyed it, and I hope that the folks at home did too. Also, thanks for the great pattern. You can find a fantastic sock pattern on craftsanity.com. I have not had a chance to make it yet myself, but this is definitely going into my crafty to do list. Brenda calls these socks the Pembrokeshire Pathways socks. The pattern was inspired by the beauty of Britain's only coastal national park. Brenda also sent along a picture, not only of the socks, but also of the view that inspired this. You'll find that free pattern at CraftSanity.com for any new listeners. I post a free project of some kind every week. So many times it's supplied by the guest. And when the guest doesn't have something readily available, I post a project of my own. So if you've never been to craftsanity.com, check it out. All right. And here's a reminder that there's some exciting contest news. Next week, I'm going to be posting an interview with the fabulous Gayla Trail. She's the creator of the fantastic You Grow Girl website. And I'm running a contest because the folks at Simon & Schuster were just awesome and donated a copy of Gala's book, You Grow Girl, The Groundbreaking Guide to Gardening. I will be giving that away to the listener who submits the coolest eco-friendly craft idea by Saturday, June 24th. The winner will be announced when I post the interview with Gala. and my hope is to be able to post some project ideas on the website when I release the green Craft Sanity episodes in the coming weeks. So I hope you all get involved in that. It doesn't have to be an elaborate project. Just tell me about something you are working on that's using recycled materials or an idea you have or send me a link to something cool you've seen. All of that will count as an entry. So send those entries in because I have this great book to give away and I've been using it as my garden Bible this year. And there are craft projects in it. I've made some uh, homemade tea bags. So it's not just for gardeners. It's for crafty gardeners. And as usual, any feedback, comments, concerns, suggestions, show ideas, guest ideas, send those along. You know, love hearing from you all. That's probably the best part of doing a podcast is making a connection. Not only with cool people, like all the people I've interviewed have been really fun to talk to but also to connect with kindred spirits everywhere you crafting right now listening to this i want to hear from you okay well you guys have a fantastic week and in the event that you start to feel overwhelmed or a little stressed just calmly pull out your craft supplies and craft sanity my friends take care i'll see you next week
1: thanks for listening to the craft sanity podcast with jennifer eckerman haywood Visit Craftsanity.com for more information about today's guest and links to subscribing to the podcast. Want to support the show? Follow the link to vote for Craftsanity on Podcast Alley once a month. You can also make a donation or buy goods at the Craftsanity store. Have a suggestion for a future guest or have other feedback? Email Jennifer at Craftsanity.com. Thanks again for listening to Craftsanity.